Welcome to another episode of the Hoop Talk Podcast by fans for fans. I'm Ryan. There's my guy, Jalen. What's up, everybody? This podcast is where we discuss all things basketball, so expect a lot of hot takes, debates, and true display of basketball knowledge. Let's get right into it. Our topic today is our continuation of our Looking Around the NBA series. So Jalen and I are choosing three storylines that we're going to talk about today happening in the NBA. So Jalen, what's your first storyline you would like to talk about? Man, you know that it's a Grizzlies podcast when your boy is on. You know, got to throw a little Grizzlies basketball out there. And the homie John Morant is back. He said 12 is back. And he's came back on a really good note so far. Um, the team is riding a five-game winning streak with their most recent wins being over Philadelphia and Phoenix. And John Morant has looked really good in those games. Um, had 17 points in both games. He had 10 assists in the most recent game, six assists in the game against Philly. Um I I genuinely think that this team, right, is a team that when John Morant is on the floor, they are always going to be a danger at the bottom of the Western Conference as a potential play-in team or as a low seven or eight seed. I think that one of the biggest things with John Morant in year two is being able to truly take command of this offense by being a high-level scorer. So one of the biggest things that we always touch on when we talk about John Morant as a player is his ability to facilitate. I think that's one of our main things that we lead on in terms of his overall traits. Um, For me, I want to see the jump offensively, and we've already seen it to a certain extent. He averaged 17.8 points last year. He's jumped to 22.6 points in the five games he's played this year. I think that he needs to take more reign as an offensive threat. He's a guy who's slowly improving his three-point shot. There's a lot of people who are playing off of him, playing back coverage on him um, defensively and not really trusting in his ability to shoot the three ball last year. And I think that he put the league on notice that he can be a relatively consistent three-point shooter. I think now it's about moving into becoming a high-level three-point shooter. Memphis obviously goes as John Morant goes, and I think that that's going to be one of the big things that's going to turn this team around. Like I said, they're riding a five-game win streak. They won three games prior to him coming back, and I think with that kind of good feeling going into getting John Morant back, I think the season only improves for Memphis as they slowly start to get these guys, you know, acquainted and really playing high-level basketball. I really wish that Justice Winslow could be in the mix of all this, that's a guy that they desperately need to get healthy because another ball handler like him would make this team really, really gel together. But I think getting John Morant back is not only good for the Grizzlies, but it's good for the league to see him back from injury. And I said in the last series, in the last episode of looking around the NBA, one of my takes was Memphis struggling without John Morant, without Jaron Jackson Jr., without Justice Winslow. I feel like now that they have John Morant back, this team is going to thrive on both sides of the floor because John Morant gives them what they need. I mean, he's a great shooter on the offensive side. He's a great defender. I think Memphis is happy that he's back, especially early in the season. You need to win some of those games early in order to uh, climb up the standings. Yes, sir. My first storyline, and it's James Harden in Brooklyn. So 
as you know, James Harden was traded to the Brooklyn Nets last week, and I feel like he immediately made a first impression with them. The interesting thing about this is that I almost predicted that James Harden would have a 30-10 and 10 double-double against the Orlando Magic, but instead he just put up a triple-double, a casual triple-double, 32 points, 12 rebounds, 14 assists, along with four steals. And then in his second game yesterday, in a close game against the Bucks, Harden puts up 34 points, six rebounds, and 12 assists including the assist to Kevin Durant that eventually won the game for Brooklyn. If you think about what Brooklyn had to do to get him, they pretty much traded Karis Alert, they traded Jaron Allen, they traded draft picks, and then they traded pick swaps. This first game might have been a glimpse into the future. And the future is when Kyrie gets back and hoping that this team meets the finals expectations that they have had to meet even before the season started. I think the first game showed that the lineup with Brooklyn seemed to work as a cohesive unit, and it did not look like they had a lot of chemistry issues on the floor. And at one point, I saw James Harden on the sideline encouraging Kevin Durant against the Orlando Magic, and I'll be honest, as a fan of basketball, it feels good to see them back together. I don't know what it is about the duo of James Harden and Kevin Durant, but it seems like there's something special brewing in Brooklyn, and I will say this. When Kyrie returns to the lineup, the starting five is going to be Kyrie Irving, James Harden, Joe Harris, Kevin Durant, and DeAndre Jordan. Sounds like a championship-winning lineup to me. Yeah, I got to agree. We didn't get to really get all of our, our energy out when we did the, the, the Hoop Talk collab. And it's one of those things where now that we get to reflect and look at it, not only as the trade itself, but now we've seen James Harden in two games, we can really kind of get excited about it. You know, when we were on the collaboration, everybody's initial thoughts were more so on the assets lost and the assets transferred in this, in this overall bombshell trade that we received that, that we, uh, that we witnessed that took four teams to complete. But now that we're actually seeing things take fruition on the court, I think it's a little bit easier to have a little bit more faith in the Nets. To put things in perspective for you, I was looking into this a little bit earlier because I thought the story was really interesting. There's words, there's a quote from Jared Allen after the trade took place. Um, he's had a couple of days to reflect on it. And the, the quote that stood out most to me was, I would do it, I'm not going to lie. Simple statement. But it tells you so much, right? Jared Allen is a guy who's moved to a Cleveland Cavaliers team that's now probably trying to regroup. Obviously, they're a younger team that's that's um, trying to build itself up with guys like Colin Sexton, Darius Garland, potentially going to be moving Kevin Porter Jr. for assets. Andre Drummond is a guy who's easily going to be thrown into trade conversations between now and the trade deadline. And he was a guy that was moved away from a possible championship-winning situation and even he understands that not only is this the way of the business, but dang, if it was a 2K sim, he would have made the same trade. That goes to tell me everything you need to know about what this Brooklyn team can look like moving forward. And I think the fact that Kyrie is now announced to be coming back and play um, and playing in tomorrow's game, we're recording this on a Tuesday, so it'll be on Wednesday, the, uh, the 20th of January. I think if we see them play relatively well in the first couple of games, together 
the trade deadline is going to be nuts because the Eastern Conference is going to be on notice. Boston, Philly, even Indiana might be desperate to make another play as somebody and make a move to be still in the mix in the Eastern Conference because otherwise, man, the Nets look unbeatable if Kyrie comes back and fits in like a like an even Steven puzzle piece. So, Jalen, what is your second storyline that you want to focus on? So, man, look, I got I to gotta bring up my Chicago Bulls real quick, bro, because I, I, I love and hate this team at the same time, man. It's putting me through some kind of bipolar experience in the NBA that is like no other roller coaster ride I've ever been on before in my life, dude. This is a guy in Zach Levine who is ha- – I mean, he's having a career year, an all-star caliber year in the Eastern Conference. And, Lord, if it weren't for guys like Kyrie Irving and James Harden being on the same team in the East and Bradley Beal hooping his mind out, I think Zach Levine would be in there, and I still think he should be in discussion for being in the all-star game this year. Average 27.4 points per game, 4.8 rebounds, and 5.3 assists. I mean, he's improved in every statistical category this year. And he is what the Bulls are looking to as an organization to be the the bridge, the ground bringer towards the groundbreaker for this Bulls organization in terms of getting out of this rut and finally really seeing strides in this rebuild. But here's my thing, man. This team is so scrappy. But there's, but there's one phrase that always comes to mind when I watch this Bulls team, and it's close but no cigar. And the reason why I say that is you look at the two most recent wins they had against the Bulls and the Ma- against the Mavericks and the, uh, the Rockets. Big win over the Mavericks, 16-point win. Um, it was a game where Laurie Markkinen really did the bulk of the work. 29 and 10 would usually get it done. It was a night where Zach Levine had to turn into a primary facilitator. 10 and 10, 10 uh, the other 10 being 10 assists. And Garrett Temple, of all people, had to drop 21 for us to win. You look at their game against the Rockets, Victor Oladipo's debut. Victor Oladipo got 32. Christian Wood got 30. Eric Gordon got 21. The Bulls responded with Zach Levine going for 33, Laurie Markkinen going for 18 and 7, and the rest of the team filling in the blanks to edge out a five-point win. But I said close, but no cigar. Do you remember the fadeaway buzzer beater missed by Zach Levine to beat the Lakers? Do you remember the three-point loss to the Clippers when Zach Levine went for 45, 7, and 7? Yes, I said 45. He put almost 50 points up and they lost. They lost by two points in overtime to the Oklahoma City Thunder who are in the Cade Cunningham sweepstakes. This is a team that keeps losing close games. I haven't even named all of them. Close win by the, over the Trailblazers earliest this month. A four-point loss to the Kings. A three-point barely win over the Wizards. A one-point buzzer beater loss by Damian Lee earlier in the year that had Warriors fans thinking their season turned around. This Bulls team needs to figure out how to close games. I think it's one of their biggest hindrances. I'm going to touch on this with another team later on. 
But closing games is one of the biggest progressions that young teams have to make. There's more shots that need to be taken and more possessions that need to be capitalized. And I think that this Bulls team needs to slowly but surely grow into that because if they don't cross that threshold, they'll never be able to move up in terms of those teams that we look to, like the Phoenix Suns, the Memphis Grizzlies, and the New Orleans Pelicans as young teams on the come up. It's tough because I see your love-hate relationship with the Chicago Bulls. Indeed. And it's tough to see because Chicago was once a great franchise that had arguably the greatest player of all time, Michael Jordan. One of the 50 greatest players of all time, Sky Pippen. And now they have Zach Levine, Laurie Markinen, Wendell Carter Jr. And I think that this team has made strides. I think this team has a very high upside, I will say, especially with Zach Levine. I think Zach Levine is their best player. And just talk about the career progression of a guy like Zach Levine. I saw him for the first time in the 2015 dunk contest, and he he almost looked like 2000 Vince Carter out there. (laughs) And then he did it again in 2016. He became a great player, and I – I just love seeing the career progression of a guy like Zach Levine, who now has the ability to become an all-star. You mentioned that he dropped 45 points against the PG Kawhi Clippers. That's a performance that kind of highlights his career because especially with the season that he's had this year, he has that capability where he could be the first all-star for Chicago since Derrick Rose. But I want to revisit one of my takes from the last um, episode that we did when we were looking around the NBA. I mentioned that Orlando was 6-2, and two, and they had just lost Mark Hilfoltz for the season. Jalen, Orlando is 0-6 since that game. And I said in that episode, and I quote, I feel like even though Orlando is a great team right now, I feel like it's going to be hard trying to fill the role left by Fultz. So I want to revisit my take to see how Orlando has progressed. And specifically, I wanted to look at Cole Anthony and Dwayne Bacon, the starting guards for the past six games. So the first game against the Rockets, Cole Anthony had 15 points. Dwayne Bacon had 10. Against the Mavericks, Anthony has eight points. Bacon has nine points. Against the Bucks, Anthony has 12 points. Bacon has 11 points. Against the Celtics, Anthony has 15 points and 6 rebounds. Bacon has 15 points and 8 rebounds. Against the Nets, Anthony has 16 points and 8 assists. Dwayne Bacon has 10 points. Now, I saw a lot of potential with Cole Anthony, and rightfully so. I mean, he had a lot, he had a lot of upside coming out of North Carolina, and I think that the five games that he had, kind of proved that he could lead the Orlando offense. But then yesterday against the Knicks, Cole Anthony had six points and Dwayne Bacon had two points. Now, granted, the Knicks are one game below 500. This Knicks team looks legit. Cole Anthony has shown flashes of potential. I think we need to see a lot of improvement from him. I think we will see a lot of improvement from him as the season goes along. But the team overall right now is struggling. They've dropped six games in a row. And 
it's clear what the missing piece is. My only question was, was it too early to give Cole Anthony the reins of the offense? Maybe, but I think six games is a small sample size, although the problem is that all six of those games were losses. So I think to to start off with that last part, like obviously the big thing is like they didn't necessarily give him the keys. They unfortunately had to pass him the keys and hope that he knew to press start before he turned it. You know what I mean? It's one of those things where you just kind of put your reliance in them and hope that they can steer the ship. But I think another thing that's really interesting about this experiment for you in terms of looking at that team, and of course, like you said, you definitely did call it that you thought that they were going to be a team that struggled. And my, you know, my initial response was that I thought Cole Anthony was going to be a guy because he's a ball dominant guard, because he's a guy that head hunts to the basket. I thought he was a guy that just off of sheer will and contact and a guy who I felt like would learn by playing, being thrusted into that environment would actually benefit him in a better way because it would make him more comfortable because he's used to being the guy. Now, of course, on this, on this Orlando team, they still have guys like Aaron Gordon, Nikola Vucevic, um, who I would consider to be significantly more serviceable than Cole Anthony or even Markel Fultz. Um, but here's the main thing too. The two guys that you picked in terms of looking at this experiment are both scorers, both scorers, high level high volume scoring options and they they don't present the same kind of overall package as an offensive player even as a defensive player for that matter that Markel Fultz provides i mean we've seen Markel go for 15 5 and 4 we've seen him go for 21 7 and 4 we've seen him go for a season high 26 2 and 2 that was in that game against Washington when they started. That was, the, that was their third game of their four-game winning streak to start the season. And then even on the light day, he gets 11 points, but 11 assists in the game against Oklahoma City. I mean, he is a guy who's an overall threat as an offensive basketball player in its totality. He has two games with eight assists this year. Like I said, he had a double-double with that 11-10 and 10 game. He has a season high of 26 points. Throw in the t- throw in the fact that he's had a steal, at least a, at least one steal in every game except his second to last game before getting injured. He's doing it on both sides of the floor. Cole Anthony has always been a scrappy defender, but not really a true one-on-one defender. Never really been good in never been good in defensive concepts either in terms of being a team defender. Dwayne Bacon has never been associated with defense. He's always been a guy who's been a bucket getter, goes chase shots. It's funny. He sounds like his ex-teammate Malik Monk a lot. So it's one of those things that kind of just tells you what the Orlando Magic are really leaning on. I think Markel Fultz is a significantly huge hit. I think you touched on it on your last take when we talked about the Orlando Magic um, in terms of Marco Fultz injury, injury in particular. And like you said, they're on a really bad losing streak. They're on a potential trajectory out of the playoff hunt. And those same Knicks that you were referring to might end up ending out the year in a better position than the Orlando Magic by the end of the season, which is very scary. But it definitely feels like some 2021 stuff that we should keep our eye on because, boy, it's a weird year.
So Jalen, what is your third and final storyline that you want to look at? Ryan, what in the world is going on with the Dallas Mavericks? I, I'm, I'm entirely confused. I, I have no clue what is going on. Luca is quoted as saying that he lost their most recent game by being selfish. I think it was the game against the Chicago Bulls where in the follow-up, he said he needs to be better. He was being selfish. This team, I don't understand it. I wish I could tell you that there was some kind of upside, that maybe it's Kristaps Porzingis coming back that can make them significantly better. But Kristaps dropped 23-9 and nine in the game against Toronto, and they lost 116-93. to 93. <laughs> Luka Doncic almost had a triple-double in that game. He had 15-9-7. and seven. They've lost the last four games. And, th- I mean, honestly, or they've lost the last three games and their fourth game against the Hornets. That, I mean, that was a game where Luka Doncic pretty much took over. But they lost their last three games, and the last, the last two in particular were against teams that they really shouldn't have lost to. I have to be honest. The Dallas Mavericks are at a very awkward position because in year three, this is where everybody came into the year saying, Luka Doncic for MVP. Kristaps Porzingis is the best two-man next to Luka Doncic and makes them one of the most dangerous duos in the league. I'm not so sure, man. I'm, I'm not so sure. I think this might still just be a young team on the come up that maybe we need to be putting in the same light as teams like Atlanta, teams like Memphis. You know what I mean? Teams that are truly developing with younger guys still trying to put pieces around. I don't know if this is a championship or even playoff contending team. I think they've got dangerous pieces. I think their series against the Clippers told us a lot about how dangerous they can be in a seven-game series. I think Dallas as an organization is feeling that the – the pain of seeing Giannis Antetokounmpo sign that extension with the Milwaukee Bucks. Now (laughs) I'm sure that they thought they were in the running for that in the upcoming summer. And now they just are devastated by the idea of not being able to get the three guys together. And Christos Porzingis, Doncic, and of course, Giannis Antetokounmpo. I think this is a team that desperately needs other ball handlers. We just talked a whole lot about Zach Levine. I honestly think that's a guy they should trade for if the Bulls will let him go. I just don't think the Bulls will do it. This team has holes, man. This team has significant holes. They rely too much on Luka Doncic as an offensive player. Can you, hey, Ryan, can you tell me what's going on with Dallas? Because I'm, I'm running out of ideas. So here's the thing, Jalen. I'll be honest. I don't have the same feelings toward the Dallas Mavericks that you do. I kind of already know that this team is – a middle-of-the-pack playoff team. However, this team is still very young. And Luka is only in his third year. He's averaging close to 27 points a game. Pretty much has is averaging close to 10 rebounds a game, 9 assists. He's pretty much averaging a triple-double for the season. He's their star player. And I think when they, when they got Chris Tepsworth-Ingus back, He's only been back for, for uh, four games. 
I feel like it's too early to tell whether or not this team is really a contender. Because, like I said, when we were talking about the contenders and pretenders episodes, I kind of wanted to see what would happen when Chris Asporzengis comes back. And he's, he's back. He's averaging uh, 18 and a half points a game, close to eight rebounds, and two blocks a game. I do think that this team still has a lot of improving to do. I don't really see the same awkward situation that you see. I think that this team definitely has a lot of potential and a lot of upside, especially with the way that Luca has been playing. They've been getting a lot of consistent production coming off the bench from a guy like Trey Burke. Jalen Brunson as well, averaging 11 points a game. Josh Richardson has been a good acquisition for them. I think Tim Hardaway Jr. just had a bad game against Toronto, but overall he's averaging 17 points a game. Do I feel like they're missing Giannis? Yes, but I feel like this team has enough room for improvement where we have to kind of see what happens with them. I do have faith in the Dallas Mavericks because they are a very good organization and they're very good developing their talent. But I, I don't have those same I don't have the same problems with the Dallas Mavericks as you do. So here's my thing with Dallas, right? And I, I agree with you. I think that they're not like a horrible team. I don't think that they're in a position where you look at them and say they're going to be picking at the top of the draft this upcoming year. I don't view them like that. They've got a lot of production going on. Six players averaging double figures. Seven, actually, because Trey Burke is contributing 10 points. Dorian Finney-Smith is almost right there, 9.3 points per game. One could argue that the, that the overall scoring load is relatively distributed. But once again, they don't have another shot creator. And I think that's hurting them in the fourth quarter. Ryan, one of the things that I looked at that I thought was really important to factor in over the last couple of games, I'm just going to read you off some statistics from the fourth quarter of the last three games. In the loss to the Toronto Raptors, they lost the fourth quarter 35-21. to In the loss against the Chicago Bulls, they lost the fourth quarter 26-28. to in the Milwaukee Bucks loss, they lost to the they lost the fourth they not lost the fourth quarter but they were t- tied 28 to 28 in the fourth quarter. Even in their most recent win against Charlotte, they lost the fourth quarter 21 to 17. What is the point that I'm trying to make here? I said that I, I said I would address this later on the podcast with a different team and I'm going to bring it up now. This is yet again another team that struggles down the stretch to be able to close out games. And the part about this one is it's it's not about having young players like how Chicago has guys like Kobe White and Laurie Markkinen and Wendell Carter closing games, Patrick Williams contributing heavy minutes to close games, Zach Levine still being a young guy, harboring a big bulk of the load offensively to close games for this team. This is not that young. This is not that caliber of a young team. You know what I mean? It's not the same level when we're talking about guys trying to come into their own in the league and learn how to close basketball games. They've got two all-star caliber players on their team, yet they're not closing out fourth quarter strong in most of these games. I think what I'm trying to point at specifically is that it shows more and more the glaring hole that the Dallas Mavericks have, which is 
that they're too Luka-centric and desperately need somebody else who can create on and off the ball for others. I think they don't realize just how much space that they do and don't have. You know what I mean? You, you look at Josh Richardson and you look him at the two-guard spot and you say he's a 3 and D guy. That's perfect, right? Perfect person to put next to Luka Doncic. We thought it was a perfect trade scenario when they moved Seth Curry because although Seth Curry's you shooting like 60% from three right now, he's still not a guy that necessarily gives you what you need defensively next to a guy like Luka Doncic. But Luka Doncic also shoots less than 35% from three. Seth Curry was at least giving you the kind of range that was space that was spacing the floor in a way that at least gave Luca more space to create. Seth Curry at least was willing to take guys off the off the dribble and create space that way in order to create for guys like Luca to move off ball and create space for himself. I don't know if Seth Curry is necessarily the answer to the question I'm trying to ask. But I do have this kind of feeling that Dallas is still a piece away from even being a legit playoff team, let alone a title contender. So I, I hear where you're coming from, and I, I have two responses. Number one, you're, you're talking about the shot creator that Luka needs. You could kind of say Porzingis is that shot creator. I mean, he's seven feet tall. He shoots threes. He shoots well in the mid-range. He's the closest thing to Dirk Nowitzki that we've seen in the NBA. You could probably also say Josh Richardson is that guy. 41% from the field, 32% from three. And if you're talking about Seth Curry and how much of a three-point specialist he was with Dallas, but he wasn't good on the defensive side, Tim Hardaway Jr. is one of their best three-point shooters on the team. And then Trey Burke as well. Trey Burke is averaging 41.5% from three. They have those pieces. If you're thinking they need to get a third star, I can kind of see where you're going. And maybe Zach Levine is the guy that they go with. But what does Chicago – actually, not Chicago. What does Dallas do to give up or to go and get a guy like Zach Levine? I feel like you have to give up Josh Richardson – you probably have to give up Trey Burke and maybe a couple draft picks, especially with the way that Zach with uh, Zach Levine's playing. It's not going to be to to the level of James Harden of the James Harden trade where there's going to be four teams involved. But I think you're still going to have to give up a substantial amount for Zach Levine, considering it's the way he's playing. But nonetheless, I do I do kind of see where you're coming from and. I think Dallas does need a certifiable third star. I do think that Luca and Porzingis, that's the duo of the team. They kind of remind me of a, of Steve Nash a little bit and Dirk Nowitzki. I feel like this team needs a Michael Finley. The closest thing to Michael Finley on this team is probably Tim Hardaway Jr. Because Michael Finley was a good 3 and D wing. But I feel like that that's maybe the third thing that they need. And, I reflect on the early Dallas days because of the potential and the upside of a, of the trio of Steve Nash, Dirk Nowitzki, and Michael Finley. And I feel like this year, Dallas has the opportunity to do that again, try to recreate the magic that they had with that trio. 
Moving on now to my third storyline, and I want to talk about a different Western Conference team. I want to talk about the Oklahoma City Thunder. I'll be honest, Jalen, this could be another surprise team in the Western Conference, and this could be the second year in a row where they could be a surprise team. You said earlier in the episode that Oklahoma City could be in the running for the Kate Cunningham sweepstakes. They might. I think there's a chance, but let's rewind to last year when they had CP3. We thought this team was going to rebuild and then trade Chris Paul, Steven Adams, Danilo Gallinari, and Dennis Schroeder. They keep all four of those guys, and then they go on to become the fifth seed in the Western Conference and then get eliminated by the Rockets in the first round in a great seven-game series. Then they trade Chris Paul, Danilo Gallinari, Steven Adams, and Dennis Schroeder and make it clear that it's pretty much Shea Gilgis-Alexander's team going into this year. And just when you think they're going to rebuild again, Jalen, Oklahoma City is 6-6 six and six right now. And they have, they have a couple guys averaging in the double digits in scoring. Shea Gilgis-Alexander, of course, averaging 22 points a game, five rebounds, and six assists. He's shooting 51% from the field, 37% from three. Lucan Stort is averaging close to 13 points a game, and he's shooting 46% from the field and 43% from three. George Hill and Al Horford, two players who I thought were going to be trade pieces, are averaging 11 points a game as starters. And Hamadou Diallo is averaging 11 points a game coming off the bench. And Darius Basley is averaging 10 points a game and close to 7.5 rebounds and is averaging a block a game. So just when we think that Oklahoma City is going to trade everyone and become a rebuilding team and have a record similar to what the Detroit Pistons have, they might fool us again, Jalen. And I feel like this team could be a team that makes a playoff run. So I'm kind of glad you brought up this team because of the fact that I think you're right, honestly, right? Because I think one of the things – I said it earlier that, like, okay, like you said before, I I think they're in the sweepstakes for Kay Cunningham. And maybe that has a lot to do with just the fact that they have crazy draft capital. So even if they weren't to get the first overall pick, they sure as heck could trade for it. You know what I mean? It would be kind of difficult – to give up the first overall draft pick when this with this kind of draft class, but depending on where you can move up and down the tra- uh the uh the the draft spots, I think that it's something that they can still vie for, depending on the circumstances. But I think you're entirely correct about them being dangerous. I mean, they're literally one game out of the A spot right now behind Memphis. You throw on top of the fact that Shea Gilgis Alexander literally looks like an all-star caliber point guard right now. He's distributing the ball at a really high level. Their young guys are playing out of their mind. Hamadou Diallo stepped up in a big way. Lucas Dort is showing us that the bubble stuff was not a fluke. Um, he's not, you know, he's not scoring 30 points <laughs> in games like like he did um, during the bubble time frame. But he's, I mean, he's still shooting the ball. He's shooting the ball, especially from three, significantly well, which was something that translated from the bubble that a lot of people were concerned about. The other thing is, I think that Isaiah Roby, um, one of their younger power forwards, has also stepped up as a potential player for them. And I also find it really interesting that guys like Theo Maladon and Alexi Pokustevsky, they haven't even really been playing crazy minutes. You know what I mean? Uh, 16 minutes for Alexi, uh, 20 minutes for Theo. I think they're in a really good position where 
when you look at what they have building block wise, they have a lot of guys who haven't even, you know, caught their strides yet, yet they're still a team that, yeah, we're pretty early in the season, but they're still in the mix. They're still legitimately in the mix too. Um, Here's my thing though. With the Thunder, the youth movement is what it is. The question comes down to whether or not Sam Presley wants to commit to that with the guys that he has or whether or not he wants to commit to utilizing draft capital. Because I think at the end of the day, I think I think Sam Presti wants Cade Cunningham. <laughs> I think Sam Presti would love Evan Mobley somewhere at the top of this draft, considering that I don't think they want to move forward with Al Horford and Mike Muscala at center. I think they I think they would much rather like Evan Mobley, who some are saying actually might be a better overall center prospect than James Wiseman was this past season. I think he, they, I think they would want to be in the mix for that. I think they, I think knowing Oklahoma City, who loves grabbing the athletic wing, would love to grab a guy in Jalen Green, Jalen Green out of the G League. So there's a question as to whether or not this franchise is committed to being a playoff caliber team with these young guys or not. There's a question as to whether or not they, whether or not this season, if they're too successful, speeds up their expectation process. There's a lot of questions around what an overachieving team looks like in year two coming off the overachievement. And with this team looking completely different, unfortunately, the bar is set relatively high. But then at the same time, we all found a way to lower it considering their circumstances because you look at them as a dangerous team based on the roster they had before. And you look at their team now and you go, Oh, they're going to sell the farm. But Shea Gilders Alexander has continued to progress. And the rest of the team has followed suit in terms of being able to step up to the plate as a legitimate team in the Western conference. So I think this team goes as far as Shea goes. If Shea makes this team a playoff contender, then I think they sneak into the playoffs. If Shea dips off in these first 12 games or just him getting his feet wet, getting back in his bag, and he starts to tear off, then I think they're in the Kate Cunningham sweepstakes, like I said before. But not to be so negative, because I love this Oklahoma City team. I loved this team last year. You remember that. I, I thought they were going to sell the farm. But as soon as I saw that they kept the team together, I said, this is going to be a scrappy squad that's going to give every team in the West a run for their money. And they surely did that. But I think there's something about this rebuild that they got going on with all the draft picks and everything that they've got going that says they're going to be good. They're going to look nice all year, but their ceiling is the play in bubble. I think that's, I think that's their ceiling. If they sneak into the playoffs through the bubble, fine. But honestly, I think that their ceiling, a successful, te- a successful season for a team this young is to just be in the playoff mix. And I think they can do that. So transitioning to our question of the day for our fans, what is one storyline that you're interested in so far in the NBA season? This has been a great episode today on the Hoop Talk podcast. Of course, make sure when you subscribe to us on Apple, you rate our podcast five stars. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you guys next episode. Peace.